You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to review the seventh album from pop star, ever-shifting genre recording artist Miley Cyrus, and Greg will memorialize the rapper MF Doom, and we hear from some of our listeners. But first, Almost Famous, 20 Years Later. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great, yeah. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is that my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. That's a little bit of a clip from the 2000 movie Almost Famous featuring the late Philip Seymour Hoffman as the rock critic Lester Bangs, Jim's hero. This week we're revisiting an interview Jim did with the writer and director of the film, Cameron Crowe, back when it first came out over 20 years ago. We both love this movie for a lot of reasons, one being it's probably one of the few, if only, movies about a rock critic. That's absolutely right, Greg. I don't know where you were. I don't remember 20 years ago, because he certainly would have talked to both of us. Uh, But I did this for Sound Opinions in another incarnation down at Chicago Recording Company. Almost Famous takes place in 1973, and it's the story of the teenage music critic William Miller, uh, the autobiographical stand-in for the director-writer Cameron Crowe. He goes on the road with the rock band Stillwater to write a story for Rolling Stone, even though his hero, his mentor, Lester Bangs, advises him, don't write for Rolling Stone, they change what you write. Uh, But he also talked to me about what it was like to interview Lester Bangs when he was 17, Cameron, in uh, 1972, just as I interviewed Lester Bangs when I was 17 in 1982. The difference was, in my case, it was two weeks before Lester died. I even got to make a visit to the set when they were uh, on the last day of doing the soundtrack for Almost Famous. So enjoy this interview in honor of the 20th anniversary of this movie. We talk about making the film, uh, the music, and a lot more. And I talk, apparently, before I hit puberty, (laughs) because my voice is an octave or so higher. Welcome. We had you on uh, in a previous incarnation of the show twice, and it was like the most fun we ever had, talking about (laughs) Led Zeppelin with you Yeah. when you were on the road. Uh, at, at what, 15, 16? 16. Well, I want to, so, so I figure in the first segment here, well, let's talk about Almost Famous. Great. You know, it's, it's opening this week. Um, Greg and I have both gotten to see it. Uh, I dig it a lot. Almost Famous is a movie about fandom. Right. And the professionalism of fandom as a journalist, yeah. you know, this character, William Miller, who who is you but not you, right. as we've talked about. That's right. Um, but it also, just uh, the key line to me is when Feruza Balk, midway through, late in the film, says, you know, you don't have any idea. She's chastising the rock star. You don't have any idea how much it is, what it's like to love a piece of music so much that it hurts. That's right. You know, to be fan- This is a movie about fandom. I reached a point where I thought interviewing the fans in the audience was more applicable and sort of exciting in a way than interviewing the rock star. Mm -hmm. And that rolled into Fast Times at Ridgemont High because I decided let's get rid of the rock star entirely and do a book about just kids living their life waiting for Led Zeppelin to come to town. Right. And that's what Fast Times was, actually. All those If people don't know, you you wrote the book, what, 8081? Yeah, eighty one. And, and you were you were twenty two at the time, but mm-hmm. you had this this lovable baby face, and were able to pass <laughs> as seventeen. Yeah, so yeah. you went back into high school. Yeah, stayed undercover for a whole year. Yeah, and wrote this book uh, about what it was really like to be a teenager. Right, 
and it was viewed as uh, harsh and druggy and all that they stuff. They had sex, <laughs> and they had sex. But now you look at it, and it's like God, no, no metal detectors. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> this never happened. There are no sweet, gentle schools like this. They're losing their virginity at 17. That's late yeah, now. That's late. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's what got me started, really. The, uh, the They asked me to write a screenplay for the book because they thought I'd be the cheapest screenwriter in town, <laughs> which I was. I think I might have paid them for the opportunity. You're doing that false modesty thing again. Come on, the book was a huge hit. It was, and it. Did you did you consider it new journalism? Because I was I was thinking about this recently. There yeah. was this wave at that time of of you know writers like Tom Wolfe and stuff getting. Wolfe went on the bus with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Yeah. You know, and you went into high school. Right. And new journalism sort of reached its its nadir with uh, JFK and the Oliver Stone. You know, let's just rewrite history and mm. not do you know, not adhere much to fact at all. Yeah. And that that was sort of the end of playing jazz with the facts a bit. But um, yeah, that's what it was. It was it played in the new journalism yeah. playground there. That was it's a fantastic book, and the movie thanks. of course is great too. But let's let's talk about that later. Yeah, I'm curious about uh, the first piece that you did. You were doing stuff for Alternative Weekly at 15. Yeah, uh, in San Diego where you grew up. Um, the, the piece that launches you, the issue of the magazine, we see William Miller in, in the movie holding it up, mm-hmm. uh, was a piece on, on Humble Pie. And, right. And, you, you, uh, you know, and there's the scene that they become, I guess Black Sabbath becomes his first assignment in yeah. the movie. And the kid's trying to get in uh, and all this stuff. What were your, how hard was it for you to get the interviews in those days? And, and, and where was the line, because William Miller faces it in the movie, between you know, being in the story, being close enough, and then being too close? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I walked the line pretty easily most of the time. I liked to blend into the woodwork. I, I liked to just, almost like a, a documentary filmmaker, I, I, I liked to disappear mm-hmm. and just observe what's going on. And every once in a while, they would, you know, somebody I was touring with would say, hey, wait a minute, there's a writer here. <laughs> and somebody would say, as they do yeah. in the movie, oh, don't, you know, don't worry, he won't write it. Yeah. And that's when the dilemma would kind of be a barb uh, in me. And I would keep a list of the stuff that that was sort of off the record. Later, I'd come back to somebody like Mm -hmm. Jimmy Page and say, you know, this incident that happened here was off the record, but I think it should be on the record because it shows blah, 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 blah. And and that that kind of gentle negotiation would happen sometimes. But mostly, I took advantage of the fact that there were fewer magazines then and there was greater access. Yeah. And you could just go on the road for weeks at a time. Yeah. Because yeah, which is extraordinary. I mean, Greg yeah. and I talk about this from time to time. I mean, you know, we are often limited to the 15 minutes, you know, with somebody. Uh, there have been cases if you ask a question the publicist doesn't want asked, they will cut off the interview. Yeah. Which is absurd. I mean, you were living with these people. Yeah. In 73. And so were the publicists. Sometimes the publicist mm. would be the hardest partiers of all. You'd be like, <laughs> let the grooviness prevail, baby. And that would be the publicist. <laughs> right, right, I'm telling right. you, it was great. And I wanted to capture a little bit of that in the movie. It, 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 that era is gone now. Greg, Greg thought you uh, you compromised at a point. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to paraphrase what he said because, uh, again, he's unfortunate not to be able to be here. He, he wanted to see more of the dilemma of what William Miller wrote and what he held back. Uh-huh. You know, in the end, we get the impression that, that, that the kid uh, yeah. writes the story and tells it warts and all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, Greg thought that was the real drama of the film, and, mm-hmm. and it's a crisis that, that a lot of journalists face, and you learn it the hard way. In rock and roll, it's often, you know, I mean, every journalist faces it, but in rock, you know, we're fans, you know, and mm-hmm. if we didn't love the music, we wouldn't be there to begin with, which makes it all the harder to have to write right. that your hero's a jagoff. Right, right, right. Well, I wanted to see more of Greg, and he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about in your own in your own personal experience? What did you ever ha- did you ever have to hold anything back? Did you ever get stuck in that position? Some sometimes I held uh, back on drug use, mm. you know, yeah, because there had there was a profile of the Almond Brothers band right before I started uh, writing about the Almond Brothers band, and uh, the the writer was named Grover Lewis, and Grover yeah. Lewis wrote about cocaine use among uh, the band members. Now, when I went out on the road with the Allman Brothers Band. They were still upset about that. And in fact, don't know if it's true or not, they said the writer participated in all this but didn't write about it. And I just wanted to steer clear of all of that. I never yeah, right. got into or out of a band be- music because of drug use. Right. So I didn't write about that. I wrote about everything else. Yeah. Well, and also the drugs were so pervasive at the time that it's like hardly yeah. news. Yeah. You know. Even editors I worked with, you know, openly yeah. did drugs. It, it's not like that anymore. Yeah, in the but Draper, that, Robert Draper's it. account of Rolling Stone, the uh, the stories of mounds of cocaine on all the desks are, are legion. Yeah, the thing that I always used to hear was uh, they would offer me drugs. Not all the time; they'd hide them from me a lot. But they would offer me drugs out of courtesy, not knowing if I expected it or not. And I would say no, and they would say, mm, "Smart kid, more for me." Yeah, <laughs> I used to hear that a lot. <laughs> all right, now here's the tough question. I'm yeah. gonna put you on the spot. Hit me, William Miller gets seduced by these three beautiful, bounteous groupies, say, hey, kids. This is it's... your toughest question? No, no, no. This no, is I'm the not... fun one. I'm just warming up. Okay, okay, good, and they good, want good. to, uh, And they wanted, you know, I mean, the kid has the time of his life. Yeah. So this, the drugs were no, but the sex was yes, at least for William Miller. Yeah. So to what extent is William Mew in that case? That is how I lost my virginity. Um, and, and true to the movie, the girl who I really wanted to stay left. Mm. And so I wanted to write about that. Steely Dan was on the TV <laughs> doing uh, Do It Again and Reel It in the Years on I Midnight Special. I missed that. I couldn't tell who was on Midnight Special. It was Steely Dan, Danny Bramson, who I work with, um, my good friend and producer and stuff. He he worked very hard to get Donald Fagan to uh, uh, approve that. Apparently that's the low point of Donald Fagan and Steely Dan's creative career. That performance? That nice. performance. But we, we but those guys have him. a good sense of humor. I've interviewed them, so so I'm sure Danny. Danny broke that. him down. Danny, yeah. Danny broke him down. But um, the thing about that was, um, I wanted to shoot it so it was a little bit like the kids at a carnival and the carousel is spinning around him, and and to capture what that feeling was. It was a little more anxiety when it actually happened, and <laughs> and I must say, it's never happened since. Yeah, yeah. The room has never been that heavily populated. Because let, but that I mean, happened. Rock, yeah. Rock critics and groupies. There is no such thing. No, no, no. I, I mean, mean, it's, it's always the, that other kid in the movie who runs around with the pen, so happy that he got Led Zeppelin's autograph. That's you know, every once in a while, one of those will come up to you and say, "Yeah, it's th- exactly." Uh, no, and those girls even knew it at the time that they were kind of uh, um, helping the mascot out a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I I married a musician who didn't even know she'd crossed the line until later. I finally yeah. had to take her aside and say, you know, you know, semi-famous or famous musicians really are not meant to fraternize in this way with rock journalists. Yeah, Nancy Wilson is lucky she did not get drummed out of the rock star core for like not only dating you but marrying you. How uncool is that? She might have gotten drummed out for marrying me. 
No. She, we all love. <laughs> Who doesn't love Nancy? No, 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 no. Come on. I'm kidding you. The plane. Um, <laughs> critical scene on the plane. We don't need Greg. Come on. I know. Well, yeah, I, but I feel guilty, you know, because I've interviewed. I got to spend that day on the set with you. The yeah. last day of sound, it was incredible. And you and Danny yeah. and everybody in your crew uh, getting to see how the you put the music to the images was a real treat yeah. for me. Cool. It was extraordinary. We loved having you there. You were part of the family that day. Well, thank you very much. It was, it was, and, and I mean, to me, that's what, what interests me about your films is that they are music films through and through, even the ones that aren't about music. And this yeah. is the first that you've, you've made that's directly about the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I figure we'll talk about that in, in the second part. Great. Um, we're talking to Cameron Crowe on Sound Opinions. Uh, I'm talking fast because I want to ask you all these questions so we don't run out of time. I'll, I'll answer quickly. Um, you were very close to Leonard Skinner, and and yes. obviously that that plane scene. Um, uh, I mean, you you could you traveled with them a lot. You yes. could have been on that on a plane like that, like the one that went down in in Florida. Easily, uh, was that was that emotionally tough for you to do that scene? Yeah, it was emotionally. The incident continues to be emotionally tough. I, I saw Judy Van Zant, Ronnie's uh, widow not too long ago, and she was trying to put together a, a, a biography, a film biography of Leonard Skinner. And I was sort of more of a mess about it than, than she was. She'd come yeah. to, to deal with it in, in healthier ways, maybe. To me, it represented a lot of loss and pain. He was the first real close associate, friend, mentorish guy, person that I'd ever known who died. Mm. And in a in a hideous way when i found yeah. out later the details of the accident i i still it still upsets me was even to talk what about was it? it artemis pile had to like crawl out of it on his belly for miles to get help or something right? yeah and he was on acid which allowed him to deal somehow better because yeah. he was high yeah but ronnie wasn't and ronnie mm. ronnie had a very violent death this was one of the great characters in rock and would have gone on to so much more and he was one of my early sponsors, not unlike Lester. Hmm. Ronnie could have just as easily been the voice throughout Almost Famous. Uh, I just, in the year 1973, when the movie is set, Lester was the guy yeah. who I felt I could call when I got into a jam. Later, that became Ronnie. And someday I'd love to write about Ronnie Van Zant. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. When we put Simple Man in this movie, one of the great Leonard Skinner tracks, something something inside felt very comfortable and right that we had some kind of representation of uh, Van Zant in the movie. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like his spirit uh, moved you. I mean, it was a big part of your writing. The pieces you wrote on Skinner were great. Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, Lester, we dropped that name. It's, yeah. it's of course Lester Bangs. Yeah, which is and and you and I first uh, got to know each other because of Lester Bangs. Mm-hmm. Very similar experiences. William Miller in the movie, uh, you know, stands outside the plate glass window of a radio station in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Uh, rock critic has come back from Detroit where he's running Cream Magazine to do a radio interview, and you go up to him essentially, Mr. Banks, Mr. Banks, I yeah. want to write for Cream. Yeah. And he mentored you. And and uh, 15 years later, I, I got to interview Lester yeah. two weeks before he died and, and uh, uh, written his biography now. Um, How much do you love having said that? <laughs> you wrote it, it's done. <laughs> yeah, right. To say I am his biographer is much better than having to talk about anything else about it. Or, or the dreaded words, 
I'm working, I'm working on. on it. <laughs> well, I got to say, you know, Cameron, I would get these emails every six months, and they were invariably, you know, and people. I'm glad it's a radio interview because people always, I, I don't think, realize the extent to which you sort of have a little Spicoli in you. <laughs> but especially the emails would be, "Dude, hang in there, keep writing. The fans are gonna love it." It meant a lot. <laughs> but uh, all right, all right. Lester steals the movie. Good. And I'm not just, I, 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 other people are saying that, so it's not just me Good. with my Lester obsession. But Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Lester and he steals the movie. And it seems like the movie is really set up uh, where he, we were trying to talk about this last time we talked. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. There's a term for this in Greek drama or something mm-hmm. where he is like the paradigm of virtue commenting on the actions. Yeah. He like knows all, he speaks down from Mount Olympus, yeah. but in his typical goofy, Lester slobby, funny way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's filled with contradictions. So he, he uh, makes these pronouncements that he himself will break. But I just, uh, I love to capture the idea that, that there was this guy who was Lester Banks who would say, he meets the uh, hero of the movie, this young kid early on, and says, call me anytime I stay up late. Yeah. And the kid calls him throughout the movie. Right. And it ends up with this last scene where they, they really are the last two people alive and up. Mm-hmm. on earth that's the feeling of it this right. late night conversation and what they say is my favorite part of the movie he says he says you know i've met you kid you are uncool yeah. don't ever make the mistake of thinking you're cool yeah yeah and the kid says uh i'm glad you are home and lester says uh, i'm always home i'm uncool <laughs> right, right right we are uncool <laughs> and i just loved uh being able to make a movie where you could put some dialogue like that in there because I went to the theater not too long ago and I saw all the trailers for the coming attractions. They're they're all the same movie. Yeah. They are all the same movie. Yeah. In a world. Yeah. Computer generated <laughs> graphics will now thrill and delight, but somehow not transport you because they're obviously computer generated <laughs> well, graphics. We're in the soundstage. We're working. You're working on almost famous. I'm watching you do this, and upstairs they're doing X Men. Yeah. Every once in a while, there's the sound of a giant digital explosion. That's which right. Which is you know worlds away from your movie. And everybody said, "Oh, they're having troubles on X Men. Oh, it's really hard. <laughs> they're really, it's really hard over there in X Men. I see these guys there whistling and skipping through the halls. Yeah. It's uh. fun." to do those kind of movies. Yeah, but you're also not exposing yourself. That's true. Which is what you get in the end of Almost Famous. It's, it is not the musicians who have bared their soul. It is, you know, it, it's the fans. It's the right. groupies, you know, the, the Band-Aids, and, and certainly William Miller. It's a nice observation. I'm really proud of that. I like that, that you noticed the Fruza Balk speech about what it is to be a fan, because that is the soul of the movie. I think I've heard you give that speech. That's, I, that's Cameron speaking there. It is it is me speaking, and uh, and I think you got to wave the flag for your heroes, people like Lester, and wave the flag for what you love about music, which uh, sometimes is the stuff that you wouldn't even admit to loving in a fairly mm. crowded room. Yeah. It's that stuff that you turn on when you're alone and look both yeah. ways and realize <laughs> it's okay, and then you dig it. Greg and I, from time to time, do a show called Guilty Pleasures, there where I'll go. reach for a meatloaf thing, or he'll, he'll pull out some fog hat or whatever, and... I can't go there with meatloaf. I'm sorry. Oh, how can you? Jim. It's better than Springsteen. Oh, my God. Meatloaf is the real Springsteen. Oh, I'm telling you. Okay, well, we'll continue this Plus on I've guilty the, you know, pleasures. I've got this thing for fat rock stars. How about unaccounted for <laughs> pleasures? Coming up, we have more with director and writer Cameron Crowe in honor of the 20th anniversary of the film Almost Famous. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're revisiting an interview with writer and director Cameron Crowe to mark the 20th anniversary of Almost Famous. 
Jim talked with him on the show in 2000, and this is that interview. Let's go back to the conversation. So we've been talking about Almost Famous. Uh, we were talking about the soundtrack. I want to ask you one more question about that and then yeah. get into a little bit more of how the music has always been used in your movies. Great. Um, there ain't no Stillwater on the DreamWorks soundtrack either. Sure there is. There's Dude. Fever Dog. But I want all the songs. You will. You will have I them. Want, I want more. You know, so Nancy Wilson and Peter Frampton, who's somebody you wrote about back in the day, were two of, of several people who worked on putting these songs together. Yeah. We got. So when are we going to hear the rest of the songs that we only get like snippets of in the movie? I think we're going to, well, first of all, the complete Stillwater body of work will be on the <laughs> DVD, them performing live. And then I think we're going to find ways to, to eke it out and put out another volume maybe of this stuff. Because the, the Stillwater... The Stillwater music I'm I'm very proud of. It is hilariously, nobly uh, accurate in terms of uh, 1973 rock. We we uh, we really just wanted to hail what the production values were and what a lot of the songs were about then. Yeah. We don't try and do the cheese and onions, uh, Ruddles kind of parody thing. We are so much more serious than that. Well, you're capturing the vibe instead of doing an homage or a tribute. That's I mean, right. really like in the moment. We are trying to be in the moment. And we wrote these songs really for fun mm-hmm. before the idea of the movie was was set in stone. And we uh, had a blast. So you wrote some of the lyrics. Nancy wrote music. Yeah. I, conceptually, I was, I was uh, <laughs> a, a big player, Jim, in these songs. Nancy really was the musician. That's a and, good question. You just done a book with know. Billy Wilder. So you are the auteur here. Yeah. The conceptual yeah. auteur. Yeah. I'm the guy that says, let's rip off Bad Company. And she's the one who does it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so much less pretentious that way. And and uh and you know we just figured they're a middle level band and they're really kind of destined to be remembered by one song Fever Dog. Yeah. But a true fan, you got to figure at this point they would have had a box set put out on them. It's at least and a behind the music episode. Live tracks, all yeah. that stuff, but really it's Fever Dog was the best song and 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 real fans would say Love Comes and Goes is as good as Fever Dog. <laughs> well, I want so so what are we going to play? I think we should play um Wow, that's a good question. Because uh, Fever Dog people are here. That is on the soundtrack. Let's play. Let's play Love Thing. Talk a little bit about uh, about the use of music in your movies in general. Yeah, everybody who's seen your films has scenes in their head ab- about uh, you know the the classic music movie moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly have them. Uh, you know, in in uh, say anything, everybody goes for uh, John Cusack standing outside with the boombox yeah. playing Peter Gabriel. I had asked you what your what your favorite scene as far as music and and movie pairing was, and and you had something different, and it, and it was this one. Let's listen to this. 
So, so that's Lloyd playing within your reach, packing up. He, he's getting ready to leave home. He's playing this tune. Why? I mean, because you, you fake me out every time. The ones that people would think of the classic moments, you chose something much quieter mm-hmm. or, or, more, or less obvious. Yeah. What was it about this scene that, that did it for you with the music and the image? It just gave me that great, happy, sad feeling, which is my favorite feeling in movies and in music. I love it when you're not sure whether to laugh or cry. Mm. And... and there's something about the way Joan Cusack and John Cusack act in that scene and the songs playing. You can't say that it's uh, you can't say that it's one thing or the other. It's not a triumphant movie exit, nor nor is it a sad moment. It's just a real moment. Yeah. And Westerberg as a songwriter kind of captures a mood that I tried to as a screenwriter. So I dig. And you're a fan of his. One of the only music videos you've done was was his. Yeah, and he scored singles, and that was a great opportunity. But, you know, so many rock critics love his stuff so much. He, he sees a former rock critic coming a mile away yeah. and runs. <laughs> runs! I think He's somebody who started reading his own press, and I think it worked against him. Well, who knows? I mean, I just... Poor guy. Um, I, I hope the Goo Goo Dolls just give him a big <laughs> chunk of their royalties. Um, you, you talked melancholy. The there's something. I mean, that 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 is not a, a mood, uh, an emotion that's in vogue in Hollywood today. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. your movies. Some people would say that that almost that they're cheesy. I mean, that's a criticism you got to hear from time to time. Yeah. Um, you know, or that they certainly wear their hearts on their sleeve. Yeah. Um, when somebody throws that at you, I mean, what do you? How do you feel about that? Um. Well, I I flinch, <laughs> as I just did a moment ago. And, uh, that wasn't me. I was asking. No, no, I understand. I'm just skillfully did that. I weep, <laughs> as I'm doing right now. No, no. I, of teeth. I, I think cheese is a part of life, but too much cheese is is not accurate. Yeah. But w- everybody's cheesy. Everybody's cheesy in some way or another. And I think you got to celebrate the cheese as mm-hmm. long as you don't. And it's it's hard to explain, but as long as you don't do it to be. Uh, simply manipulative yeah i think Mm. i think to go the other way and to say uh everybody's cool we live in a cool world where no nobody's cheesy is dishonest yeah so hopefully the stuff that i've done you know see i've been wrestling with this yeah i've been wrestling with this because i I went back to all the movies after i interviewed you in la (laughs) and i was doing this piece for the sun times and and what i sort of came up with is that uh, you know lester says in the movie Go out and be honest and unmerciful. Yeah. He says it twice. Yeah, yeah. And and I see I think you you're always honest, but you're never unmerciful. Mm-hmm. That even the most despicable characters in your movies, like uh like um, John Mahoney playing the corrupt nursing home dad and say yeah. anything, or yeah. or Bob Sugar, who's really despicable, and yeah. Jerry Maguire. Yeah. You like those guys. Yeah. You even like those those jerks. Yeah. Well, you can't take the advice. Uh, you can't take all the advice everybody gives you. <laughs> is my answer to that. And and the truth is, the world is filled with movies with black and white characters. Mm. But the world itself is it's not black and white. Sure. And I I love just from spending time with Billy Wilder doing my book. I see that even Billy Wilder at ninety four celebrates the gray areas. Yeah. He just does. Yeah. It's endlessly entertaining to him the which shades is not of gray. a hollywood i mean hollywood you know in general goes black and white absolutely and it's more black and white than ever but i you know i just uh i love observing life and if you say life is black and white or not cheesy at all you're wrong uh the the thing is not to ever get caught out with a tin cup begging for people's emotions right right and the funny thing is every time i've done that it hasn't worked every time mm. 
I haven't had that on my mind, which is most of the time, and I've written something personal, that's what people respond to. From from Judge Reinhold getting caught uh, doing his business in the bathroom of Fast Times, <laughs> it's generally the stuff that I just write one night and figure I'll cut out the next day. I wonder if something about Mary, those guys like. had seen that that scene. I think they and, had. Uh, ben yeah. Stiller uh, talked about it on a on a on a talk show once, and I'm you know I'm honored that it becomes again another subgenre. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking to Cameron Crow on Sound Opinions. This is Jim DeRogatis, Jerry Maguire, music and movie. Uh, I think of of uh, Tom Cruise in the car, rapping away at the uh, at the at the steering wheel and singing Tom Petty. Well, one of the things that, that, you know, the William Goldman school of, uh, of screenwriting, you know, yeah. the, the screenwriter is never supposed to put music in the scripts. And you've, you've told me that, that all of your scripts, you know, you've got the music in your mind yeah. even as you're writing. Yeah, it's true. And you know what? William Goldman came to see Jerry Maguire and he came to one of our screenings in New York and he came up to me. Actually, his daughter came up to me and said, I'm William Goldman's daughter. Do you want to go meet my dad? And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she takes me to William Goldman and he... And, and I said, what would you think of the movie? And he goes, it's the damnedest thing. It shouldn't work. It should not work. And his, and his daughter kind of shoved an elbow into his, into his ribs and said, but, Dad, you liked it. And he goes, yeah, but it shouldn't work. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, this from the yeah. guy that says there are no rules. Well, he's the king of three acts. You know, first act, second act, three act. There's a curve to all the stories, right? Yeah. And, and what he was missing is that it was a music. That often was making the connections in your in in Jerry Maguire. Well, you know what? Uh, you may have just solved it because I <laughs> late at night I still toss and turn and say, "What was William Goldman's problem?" Well, everything they they break the world down into. <laughs> he into couldn't these... even say it himself. Yeah. He just kept saying it's the damnedest thing <laughs> because it wasn't something that was on the page. Yeah, it was something that was on the soundtrack. Yeah. Well, this movie, almost famous, is all that. You know, mm. music makes all the connections. And it seems to have touched people a lot as we've shown it, which, you know, both makes me feel really happy that I did it and also want to do something completely different next time. Well, now you're heading, like you're starting another movie for the first time in your career. It's been yeah. like three or four years between yeah. projects. Yeah. You're like, you're heading out of Dodge. That's right. We're going to start another one in November. How much of this is you, you know, you've put yourself more on the line in this movie uh, than in any of your films because it's obviously right. it's your life True. it's you up there you know Francis McDormand's playing a character based on your mom your right. sister's in there right. to what extent is are you just trying to get the heck out of Dodge and, and, and not be around while people like uh, like watch you watch you know watch your adolescence unfold well doctor <laughs> um, that's part of it but the movie comes out in, in uh... this week yeah, it comes out this week, and we're not starting till November, so I'm still going to oh, be okay. around. All right. It, it, the second wave of fallout I might be working for, but during, but most mostly, uh, you know, I just want to keep working. I want to keep the directing mm. muscles taut, as yeah. opposed to uh, building back up again over a period yeah. of years. Well, I, you know, it's been a treat, Cameron. It's a real treat having you here, and especially knowing how much this movie means to you. Um, it's interesting. I mean, you know, so few of the people that, that I get to interview, you know, who, who are on your level in the music business, I mean, you rarely see that level of commitment. And this movie, obviously, is like your heart and soul. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's a treat having you here to talk about it. Thanks. And, you know, and you know 
you have got an open invitation to Sound Opinions. Thank I want to have you on when we can put you on with some fans and, and when Greg can be here and when we can Great. do just, You know, and like, like forget about movies. We'll talk about Zeppelin. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm very proud that you were with us on a very important day as we were finishing this movie. You, like it or not, were a part of this movie. And uh, so it's cool to come to your place and check out your thing. Well, thank your you. Your love thing. <laughs> so this was really great, Jim. Thank you, Cameron. That wraps up one of the deepest cuts we've ever given you from our archive. My interview with uh, writer and director Cameron Crowe was before Almost Famous came out. Everybody was talking about how the film has aged and held up uh, 20 years later. Well, we were there before it was even out. When we come back, a review of the latest album from Miley Cyrus, and Greg will say goodbye to the late rapper MF Doom. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a little bit of a track called Midnight Sky by Miley Cyrus from her seventh album, Plastic Hearts. Uh, Greg, why are we reviewing Miley Cyrus? I think she's a fascinating pop culture icon, ever-changing, chameleonic, born in Tennessee. Her dad, of course, was Billy Cyrus, my achy, breaky heart. Since breaking big in the early 2000s as Hannah Montana, star of the Disney Channel show of that name, uh, she's gone on to a pop career uh, collaborating with a fascinating roster of people from the Black Eyed Peas and Pharrell Williams to the Flaming Lips. Miley was working on an album uh, during what was a tough uh, year for her in 2019. It wound up being completely scrapped. For one, her home in Malibu burned down in a wildfire. For another, she went through a painful divorce and the uh, older material didn't really seem applicable. So what has Miley Cyrus given us now? Uh, In part, we have some of the best production talent that pop music dollars can buy, folks like Ryan Tedder, but also a fascinating roster of uh, collaborators, uh, Dua Lipa, Billy Idol, Joan Jett. Let's play that Billy Idol song and we'll come back and give our opinions on Plastic Hearts. This is Night Crawling by Miley Cyrus featuring Billy Idol. That is Nightcrawling from the new Miley Cyrus album, Plastic Hearts, uh, the inimitable voice of Billy Idol on that track as well. You know, it's not one of those uh, relevant figures anymore, but Miley has made him relevant by putting him on her record. Well, you know, I think you have to have a dark heart to not love dancing with myself, <laughs> right? I mean, I know this guy is white a White wedding, man. I'm, white I'm, wedding. I like that song. I'm right? sorry. And this is kind of a white wedding-ish kind of groove here. Yeah. 
Um, you know, the thing about Miley, it feels like she's been around for a lifetime. And, and you know, my daughters grew up with her. I mean, well, you know, in Disney Montana, years, Montana, that's, she's a, a senior citizen. That is really hard to do. I mean, she's maintained a relatively relevant career for nearly two decades now, which is hard to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this record debuted at number two on the U.S. Billboard chart. So it's not like she's gone away. Um, people are framing this as her rock record. She is, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, she has, she's done all the turns. She made a rap record in 2013. Yeah. She did that Flaming uh, Lips collaboration. Uh, there was kind of a country move in 2017 yeah, yeah. on that Younger Now uh, record. Uh, now she's going back to the, to uh, sort of a more of a rock approach and very steeped in, in the 80s, you know, the Stevie yeah. Nicks. The, the Billy Idol. Blondie. Uh, she's, she covered blond, a Blondie track as well as a Cranberries track, mm-hmm. which are appended to this record in live versions. At the same time, she's referencing country again on that track called High. She's brought in Joan Jett for a track called Bad Karma. Kind of a heavy-duty track, kind of a confessional track, and yeah. then she does the confessional thing again on Golden G-string, where I think here is here is somebody who's basically been scrutinized her entire life as a pop star, and this is either a, a an apology or an explanation. Take your pick of what she went through during that time, and I think what we're seeing here with this with this Miley Cyrus record is she's trying to reframe her career. I'm no longer that pop ingenue. I realize that. I'm 28 years old. I want to mature. I want to, I, I want to grow into the role of a relevant artist, not just a pop star. And I think she kind of pulls it off here. I mean, she's got the chops as a vocalist to pull these kind of things off. So yeah. I think this is a successful record for, for Miley Cyrus. I never thought we'd be reviewing a Miley Cyrus record and, and giving it some praise. Well, at least one of us is giving it some well, praise. No, I'm curious I, to hear what you think about it. I like it. it, too. I mean, I have no use whatsoever for the third track on the album, Angels Like You, which is one of those big, syrupy, sorry ballads. And I've always been fascinated uh, by Miley Cyrus, uh, you know, just because of her unpredictability. Hannah Montana was a show about a pop star also trying to be a normal teenage girl. And then, you know, two, three years ago, she did that episode of uh, Black Mirror, where she essentially played herself right. as the pop star. Meta, and Meta people, Miley, right? <laughs> you know, I think her entire career, you had to have this strange, warped perception of what uh, popularity and celebrity does to you. And I think she's tried to be a real person throughout that. Sometimes she tried too hard. Um, here, I think she's just having fun. And, you know, it's not especially deep lyrically, but there is a lot of you know, blank off if you don't like what I do. And that is a timeless sentiment to come from anyone. Certainly we got it from Joan Jett in the 70s and 80s, uh, and and here Miley is channeling that. It, you know, I think it's a record best appreciated in pieces. You know, put put it on a playlist, uh, a couple of uh, the tracks that you like, uh, you know, necessarily beginning to end, not a great experience, but, you know, good for her. 
Yeah. And, you know, the thing about her, I want to add one thing. The, the fact that there's sort of a lack of calculation about her. Like, most pop stars are very calculated. Yeah. And there's that line in Bad Karma, which I think is kind of true. I'd rather just do and think about it later. Yeah. You know? And I, I kind of like that. Miley's just out there sometimes being messy, but always being interesting. Don't talk about my mom, Joe. Sometimes he rhyme quick, sometimes he rhyme slow, or vice versa. Whip up a slice of nice verse pie, hit it on the first try, villain. The worst guy, spot hot tracks like spot a pair of fattest. Shots of the scotch from out the square shot glasses. And he won't stop till he got the masses. And show what they know not to flows a hot that is a little bit of uh, Daniel Dumile, otherwise known as the MCMF Doom, uh, who died on October 31st at the age of 49. Yes, October 31st. We're acknowledging that because uh, Doom's family didn't acknowledge his death until three months later, saying, oh, by the way, he died on Halloween. Um, and, you know, his whole life was sort of a mystery. You know, who yeah, is this yeah. guy? You know, he's wearing the masks on stage. And indeed, his death was a mystery as well. We didn't get many details about it. Dying at 49, this was a crusher for a lot of the hip-hop fans that I know. For my money, uh, he was as, as good an MC as we've had in the last 20 years. Just a consistent string of great records. Born in London, raised on Long Island. Uh, debuted in 1989 on a third base record. Remember third base? I do remember you know, third that, base. That was his debut as a teenager. His career started to take off from there. He was in a group with his brother, KMD. His brother died at a very young age, mm -hmm. was in a car accident. Dumoulin came back and reframed himself as MF Doom, as a solo artist. A super villain 90s. superhero. Indeed. And I think, Jim, what was interesting to me about Doom in this period, in the late 90s, there was a lot of talk swirling around the hip-hop world that hip-hop was played out. It had become all about the money. It was talking about the same subjects yeah. over and over again. And lo and behold, as hip-hop consistently has reinvented itself, it did once again in the late 90s. You saw the emergence of things like the Raucous label and the Def Jux label making really interesting records. And MF Doom was at the very forefront of that movement, sort of bringing hip-hop back to this notion of anything is fair game. Well, an incredible uh, lyrical gift, but also a musical curiosity, Greg, that had, had disappeared from hip-hop at that point. Yeah, you know, I interviewed him in around 2004, and he told me that he was a big fan of, like, the Twilight Zone and yeah. you know, these TV soundtracks <laughs> and Frank Zappa records and jazz records. Mm -hmm. He was really eclectic in the kind of stuff that he would listen to, and he, he was incorporating those sounds into his records. And his bars weren't sort of structured verse, chorus, or anything like that. There weren't, there weren't hooks, per se, in his songs, but his rapping was so dense. The way he would put, like, three- and four-syllable words together to punctuate each bar, yeah, you know, rhyming three and four syllable words right now. I was astonishing what this guy was able to do. Some of the stuff was free form, but he told me that, you know, he liked to write and rewrite and really work through the bars. You listen to an MMF Doom record and figure out the density and the layers in that music and the way he was able to use his voice as an instrument it, to me, it was, uh, you know, made him one of the all-time great artists of the last 20 years. Now, I think the, the peak work for him was under the MF Doom persona. There were others. He, he called yeah. himself many different things over the course of his life. And he had a collaboration with Mad Lib in 2004. They dubbed themselves Mad Villain. And there was a Mad Villainy LP that came out in 2004 that I think is the absolute height of his artistry. I'm going to play a track from that record called Accordion, where you get a sense of the playfulness, the humor, the density of his rhyme schemes over a great 
great uh, Mad Lib track where he takes an accordion-based sample and then undercuts it with his own beats that are kind of spaced out and leave a lot of room for, for Doom to do his Accordion-based. Accord- I love yes. that. Here's a track called Accordion from the Mad Villainy LP with Mad Lib and MF Doom on Sound Opinions. Living off borrowed time, the clock tick faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster. Dick dastardly and muttly with sick laughter. A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master. I see E. Cole, nice to be old. Y2G Steve twice to threefold. He sold scrolls, low and behold. Know who's the illest ever, like the greatest story told. Keep your glory, gold and glitter. For half, half of his to take him out the picture. The other half is rich and it don't mean accordion in tribute to the late mf doom dead at the age of 49 so much loss greg Mm -hmm. in 2020 uh you know people have been writing into us you know you didn't get to mention x or y it's a what a year i'm glad it's done happy new year greg same to you jim do you at home have thoughts on MF Doom's legacy? Share them with us by recording a message on our website or use your phone and email it to interact at soundopinions.org. And Jim, many listeners have uh, done just that over the last few months, but we haven't had room in the show to share them. One resolution for 2021 is to bring in listeners' voices on a regular basis. Yeah. So let's hear what you had to say about some of our recent episodes. <laughs> Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Jessica from Detroit, Michigan. This message is in response to your Tribute Albums episode. I am calling to give my support for the 2011 Shonen Knife Ramones tribute album, Osaka Ramones. Uh, It was an album they released to celebrate their 30th anniversary. I just love the album. I think it's super cute and really clever from top to bottom, including that really uh, adorable, cute, kawaii anime-style cartoon version of the Road to Ruin cover. I'll take We're a Happy Family, this version by Shona Knife, over the Ramones version any day. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Charles from Minneapolis. I just listened to your latest podcast where you interviewed uh, Nana Ajoa. She sounds like a really cool person, and I, I really like the sound of her music. Uh, I got home, I bought her album, and I'm really enjoying it top to bottom. It's not every time that your hidden treasures lands well with me, although they're always interesting to listen to, but when it does, I love that it's something I would never otherwise have heard of. So anyway, uh, thanks for... uh, all that you do. I love your podcast. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you so much. Hello, Sound Opinion guys. This is Michelle from Florida. I thank you so much for zeroing and, and um, doing the Carpenters. The, the song, We Only Just Begun, I was about 13 or 14 when I heard it. And um, I began to listen to all of their songs, and I loved all their songs. But... That one that you played was my favorite. Thank you so much for playing that song. Continue the good work that you always do with Sound Opinion, and I will continue to be listening to you every Saturday afternoon and be supporting you as well. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hi. Calling from Tokyo, Japan, with 
a buried treasure recommendation. From myself, Jay. Uh, the band I'd like to highlight is actually uh, a band called Over, and they used to be quite a ferocious, lo-fi, black metal band, and somewhere along the lines they changed their sound and warped their uh, style quite a bit, and uh, came out the other side as a synth 80s goth dance band. They have a new record called Flowers of Evil, and it's quite a stark, simplistic, minimalistic album full of really great songs. Hi, Doug Nicholson from Toronto. Thanks so much for the Pylon interview, it was great. I first saw them when they were supposed to open up for the Gang of Four at the concert hall here. For some reason they were delayed. I assume it had something to do with getting across the border. Gang of Four had played their full set and at the end said if you hang around, Pylon will be out. It was about a 20-30 minute wait and sure enough they came out and played to a small crowd of under 100 people. It was funny hearing them say they acted like tourists when they were on tour. It's true. I saw them the next day near the Eaton Centre in downtown Toronto, close to where I went to school. I went up and told them how much I enjoyed the show and they seemed genuinely surprised and delighted. Thanks to those listeners for sending in their messages. I'm so glad to have listeners back in the show, Greg. Again, you can record your message on our website or use your phone to record a voice memo and email it to interact at soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, regrets? I've had a few. (laughs) We're going to do some songs about mistakes. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.